Hi, everyone. Welcome to season two of Belongings. I'm so grateful and happy that you're joining us for another season of conversations with inspiring, creative people as we discuss home, belonging, identity, and more. I've learned so much from our guests this season, and I hope you will also find these conversations as rich and meaningful as I did. Thank you again for supporting the podcast, for being here with us, and for supporting Karam Foundation. I really appreciate you being here, and I really hope you enjoy this season. Welcome again to Belongings. Hi, Ren. Welcome to Belongings. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here today. We are starting season two of Belongings. We're really happy of this journey that we were able to complete season one under very difficult circumstances, but we found that this process of making the podcast was very meaningful to us as a team and to listeners. So I'm very excited that you're going to be part of the beginning of season two of this podcast. Well, thank you for including me as well. What a great year to have started this though. I mean, from the standpoint of just what a dramatic year. So congratulations. Yes. It's a dramatic year. And as we go through the process of talking to different people across the world about belongings, but specifically when we talk to our community in Turkey and Syrian people, it definitely has a shift in how people are thinking about belonging in the post-earthquake reality. And this is something that we're going to be focusing a lot on this season. That's good. That's really good. So before we start, I want to introduce you to our audience, Ren Vara. He is actually a very privileged and also very proud and honored that Ren is actually my coach. And he's been helping me and Kadam Foundation for a couple of years now and just doing everything pro bono for us and actually contributing to the organization in all different ways. So we're so gracious to you and your team for all of your support to Kadam and to me. And I've just found so much value speaking with you over the past couple of years, especially during this difficult years of coming out of the pandemic and the different struggles that we've been through that I really wanted to share your insight and your experience with all of our community. Well, it's been a privilege, as you know, uh, from my perspective. So thank you. So a very short bio of Ren. Ren is extremely accomplished. Ren Vara co-founded SNP Communications with Maureen Taylor in 1992. He's responsible for introducing enterprise communication media before the days of podcasting and video calls. His original talk radio product allowed CEOs and sales leaders to find their audiences and focus their business. Ren continues to innovate, helping today's startup founders realize their potential through clear messaging and voice. Prior to SMP, Ren served on Capitol Hill as a congressional staffer and worked with homeless teenagers in the streets of New York City. Ren is known for helping leaders connect with their true values and mission as the basis for ethical leadership. His approach gives these leaders the permission to speak authentically as they build iconic high-performance companies for the long term. His experience includes more than 30 years working with Silicon Valley tech companies, startup founders, and senior teams. He's an advisor, facilitator, communicator, slash writer, and an avid student of startup life, splitting time between San Francisco, New York City, London, and Istanbul. Welcome Istanbul. again, Ren. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now I feel so old to hear all of that. You're so accomplished, you know, coach to the CEO stars. We'll get into that later. But we're <laughs> going to start with the traditional belongings questions that I have at the beginning yeah. of every episode and every conversation. So my first question is, how do you think about the concept of belonging? I think about this a lot because my introduction truly to belonging in a technical way, I credit Brian Chesky and Airbnb because I went through that whole branding effort that had them land on belonging, you know? And it was so interesting. People may think that was shallow or think it was corporate or think it was, you know, I don't know, a pretension in order to maybe build some kind of marketing thing. It was quite the opposite. We worked very hard at trying to figure out what does it mean to be a part of a community? What does it mean to walk into a stranger's house? What does it mean to be willing to talk to people that you may completely disagree with, that maybe they come from a totally different background, but you walk in with an open mind and a willingness to engage, right? And at the base of it, we didn't realize it at the time, we landed on this idea of belonging. So I find it really interesting that you named this belongings, because at the end of the day, you know, if the wish for everyone on earth, that wish has got to be that, 
that you, when you walk into a room, you walk into a place, you, wherever you are, you feel like the people that are with me accept me for me, not because of something else, but just me. I think that's a gift. So um, I think about it a lot, actually. That's great. And to everybody listening, if you don't know, Brian Chesky is one of the co-founders of Airbnb and also one of my fellow RISD alum. And mm-hmm. a, a connection to belonging is we, we, when we chose the name for the podcast, my actual thesis at RISD was called Belongings. And I came back to it almost 20 years later because it is such a powerful word and it carries so many meanings within it that we were very passionate about belongings as even our stuff and what our stuff is and where it ends up in the process of displacement and the idea of home and the idea of longing and being and then belonging itself. So we're going to go to our map of home exercise and this is something we do. So you're going to have to show us your drawing skills. The prompt is very easy. It's very simple. We ask every guest to draw a map of home and the map can be a floor plan. It can be as architectural or, you know, mapping a map like as you'd like. And it could also be, you know, a symbol. It could be anything you'd like. And I'll, I'll give you a few minutes to actually do that. Some people choose to talk while they draw and then we can talk about that. And some people just draw in silence and then we'll come back and I'll ask you to tell us the story of your map of home. Okay, you're going to guide me a little bit. When you say map of home... Are you saying what our impression of when we think home, how do we think? Is that what you're saying? It could be a map of your home in the past. I used to actually do this exercise with Syrian kids starting from 2012 in the camps all the way through. And then I did it once actually for an audience live in a talk. And it was an incredible thing. And the idea is that you can think about home in the past. You can think about your home in the future. You could think about a symbol of home. So over the course of even this podcast, people have drawn different things and expressed different things of what home means to them. And so you can think about a specific place or you could actually think about a feeling and what comes to you when you think about mapping your home. Okay, I've I've got an idea here, but it may be very weird. So um, It's okay. Weird is great. (laughs) (laughs) We love weird. While I'm drawing, let me share something with you as it relates to this idea. I'm in a weird stage of life where I am reading all these philosophy books and history books. I'm just, I've absorbed myself into a really bizarre kind of uh, environment of words, if you will, right? And I keep coming back to this really weird thing, which actually, you know this about me, but my first little book that I did was called Tattoos. And it was about all these tattoos on my body. And oddly enough, I have on this forearm, in Moroccan Arabic, I've got this saying, which is Bena huna wahunak, between here and there, right? And it was put on my arm by some friends of mine in Morocco who've known me for many, many years. And I asked them, I said, give me something on my arm that tells you something about me. Like, how do you see me? And they really put some thought into it. And they said, Ren, what we see you is you are very much, you're in the world, you're between, you're like, you know, in that adventurous kind of place, right? So when I think of home, this is actually what I think. And this is odd because, um, look, I'm married. I've got two kids. I get it. And I'm, you know, I'm happily so. I love my children. I love that I've been able to build a home because I grew up in a very odd way. I didn't grow up with parents, you know, so I, um, I grew up very much raised by my community that I, when I was a small, you know, in a very small town in the deep South. And I, always wished for a home. My whole life had always been to find a great partner and, you know, have babies and, you know, build a business and be that guy. You know, that was my thing, right? But as I've gotten older, I realized that actually that's not me at all. It's a part of me, but I belong in the world. And so I belong with people. I belong out in the crowds. I belong in the airports. I belong visiting. I belong engaging. I don't look at it like a building. My wife and I share the same kind of values. We have no connection to things. It's really odd. We've never been, I mean, we have beautiful things, sure. But if they all went away, we're like, we're good. We just never, ever got attached to things. So for me, it is probably closer to this belongings than not. I mean, it's the idea of I exist only when I engage. If I'm not engaging, it's like quantum mechanics. I don't think I exist. And that has become, I guess, my mantra as I've gotten older, that I realize my job is my home, if you will, is in the world. 
of it between it. You That's know, incredible. Being able to blow it up. You know, it's it's between here and there. I love that. That's so powerful. I actually, I think I'm going to skip ahead because towards the end of this, I wanted to ask you actually that I consider communication is so strongly attached to the idea of belonging. I think what you're just expressing is, you know, engagement as belonging and your job as belonging and home and I just think about, we haven't had anybody talk about that, about the act of communicating well or poorly affects so much about everything in our lives, from our lives at home, our lives at school, our lives in our jobs, our lives in the community. It, almost everything hinges on if people are communicating well or not. That's right. That's right. And what we have to remember is that communicating is not words only. Words are a part of it, but there's it's also how you walk in a room. It's also how you your eyes. It's it's an attitude, right? And I'm not saying by any means, by the way, I coach others, but I'm a big critic of myself on this. And my wife, she was here, she would fill you in with a lot of critiques she could make of my communication skills. But what I try to do is I do really own that idea of it's not what you say, it's how you make people feel, mm-hmm. right? But I don't make that as a manipulation. I believe it. Yeah. Like I firmly believe it. So I don't use it I live it. I try to just, this is my responsibility. It's not something you, you know, in the West, the problem with the West is we make everything commercial, right? So if I'm going to be a good listener, that's going to make me win more, right? No, no, no. It cannot be from that approach. It's got to be much more. How do we, as citizens of this little ball, how do we add to and help and participate and, you know, engage and make people feel safe and listen and be honest and right. How do we play that role in a good way? And communication is that very front end, right? That you've got to come up with the right attitude. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's a really powerful message to give to people that it's not transactional. Right. Totally. Yeah. So you have a time in your past where you worked with homeless people in New York City. And I actually wanted to ask you specifically about that concept. And you just, when you're talking about your map, about not really having a home when you were young, can you talk to us about that experience of working with homeless people and how that is connected to the sense of belonging and the sense of home for people who don't have it? Well, I was a congressional aide. I was on Capitol Hill for like four years, right? And I was struck by poverty. I just, I couldn't understand in such a rich nation, how is it that we have so much poverty? So I, just out of fluke, I did this piece of legislation and I got to know this group in New York City that cared for, and still do, care for runaway and homeless children, right? So had a big shelter on the west side of Manhattan, a thousand kids a night in the shelter. And it was everything you can imagine, right? That all that street stuff that was going on, right? And what I learned, you know, you come in first with this attitude of, I'm going to help right? That arrogance of help idea. And you learn really quickly, uh, no, no, that's not what this is about at all, right? And so I quickly realized that the greatest gift I can give any of this is be present, shut my mouth, and just be present, nothing more, right? And so these teenagers taught me to just shut up. And I would spend time just sitting and being with them. And then they would end up coming to me, you know, out of curiosity. And then I would engage with them. And what I learned from them is this idea that, first of all, one of the shockers for me was, and I still remember this because it was such a, it hit me so hard. I thought I was unique. I thought I had been raised in this very odd way, that I was homeless, you know, and I didn't ever leave a family and, you know, my God, how horrible. And then I met them. And I was like, I am not alone at all. This is a big problem. A lot of people live this way. And I was actually quite blessed and lucky that it happened to me in a very small town where the entire town embraced me and took care of me. These kids are in a city and they're anonymous and nobody cares, right? And so I quickly realized, whoa, I'm a part of something far bigger than me. And then in that engagement, they taught me to shut my mouth. And I think that was you know, really odd. It sounds like I should be taught to communicate, but it was the other part of communication, which was presence, mm-hmm. you know, just be there and be consistent and, you know, feed, clothe, house, help truly don't talk, help, help. Right. And that became a big part of that experience. I spent four years doing it. Met my wife actually doing it. And that's why New York is such a special place to me because I've always had an apartment here ever since. And I'm always in New York because of that experience. That's just incredible. And 
I love that also you're adding on to that layer of presence as a piece of communication and a piece of connection, presence yeah. and engagement. Yeah. So coming to your other projects, I know that throughout our conversations, you've talked about your writing and your writing projects. I mean, everybody should read Ren's writing online. He has an amazing blog. He talks a lot about leadership and all of these kinds of business-oriented ideas that are useful to all of us in the workplace. But you also have a very personal writing project that I know that you've went to Istanbul of all places to work on. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Because I'm very intrigued by this project. Yeah, I am. I decided as I've gotten older, I've decided that I needed to write things down. And what this came from is when you read history, you realize the winners, I'm not saying winning to win, but winners, the people that actually get their voice out there are the ones who write it down. Like if you don't write it down, then everybody else is going to interpret everything, right? So selfishly, I made a decision. I was going to write books, not for general publication, but for my family, for my grandchildren, who are, by the way, my neither my son or daughter have any children anywhere near coming. But the idea is that in, in whatever progeny exists out there, that there'll be some explanation. And where this really came from is my grandfathers on both sides were pretty amazing, but they never wrote anything. And they're interpreted by their children. And I just really always hated that. I just thought that was just inappropriate because I knew one of my grandfathers really well, and I knew how he was. And I was like, God, if he had written it, it would be better. So selfishly, I started writing. Oddly enough, what happened to me is I have this stage of life where if somebody asked me to do something, I just say yes. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre, but yeah. I just say yes. And one of them was these founders in Istanbul reached out and said, can you come to Istanbul to work with us? And I was like, sure. And that was literally the totality of my thinking was what I just did. It was literally just, sure. And then I got on a plane, I found myself in Istanbul, and then I was shocked by the emotion I felt being in Istanbul. First of all, as a Western white man, I felt phenomenally uninformed. I felt like, how could I be this old and not know any of this? How could I not even be aware, really, of any of this amazing history, other than the superficial? I had all the you know, superficial stuff, but not what I found on the ground. So I decided to write a book and I don't know why this happened, but I, I just got enamored with Salim the first mm-hmm. from 1512 to 1520. He was a, a sultan and he's got this really kind of really bad reputation of being the grim, right? But I became a student of him and, and his relation with his mother, his relationship with his wife, the way he ruled. He was very different from the Ottoman sultans you read about. But then from there, it connected me to the country of Turkey, which then connect me to Syria, which then connect. I just got really into this part of the world. And so I'm writing a book that is, it's a confessionary book in a way, because I want my children to kind of know how I think, right? Good and bad, right? But the through line is Selim the first. That's so interesting. He's kind of the thread because his life is full of these really interesting moments. And I have some historians helping me. So it's not just me kind of doing what I'm doing. I've invested in having good voices who know the history to inform me. So I'm not saying stupid stuff, but I'm intertwining it with this modern Western man facing some realities, facing some truths. And one of the major truths is, you know, I've been lied to most of my life. And to realize that late in life is a really interesting awareness to come to that the world is far different than what maybe we're taught. And I think that's a real education for all of us to realize we get we get told things, but you need to walk in people's shoes. You need to go see them face to face, and you're going to find something very different than what you were taught through media or taught through history books or taught through your education. And that's what the book's about. And I hope to pass it on to my grandchildren to have them walk the path a little bit and maybe open their brains up so that they're not going to be tainted only by their Western experience, right? I could be naive, but that's I'll really we'll see what this is. How far along are you in this process? Well, that's a really interesting question. I've been working on it now for a while, but I have a, a moment in mind. And so this summer is a critical moment. So I'm going to be spending the next two to three months, heads down. My goal is to get the first version ready for the editor by September 1st. Okay. So we'll see. I mean, I would love to read it. <laughs> I think this whole idea of a private book, putting all this into it, I'm sure a lot of other people would like to read it too. Well, it's funny enough, you know, I did this first book 
my what I call my practice book, which was a book on all my tattoos. For you know, you know that I'm, I'm like I ridiculously started tattooing ten years ago, and so I have like all these tattoos all over my body, and I took pictures of all of them, and I wrote essays on all of them, and found out that actually it told a nice story over ten years of this experience of belonging. Really, actually, the whole book. Right? What's ended up happening is friends of mine have all like now have copies of it. Yeah. So it's it's gotten out into the ether a little bit. So I'm, I'm sure that this book will do the same. So it's not that I'm just like, you know, holding it to my chest. If somebody wants a copy of it, sure, I'll give a copy of the well, book. Well, I'll look forward to reading that. I'm going to move into some questions about your work as a coach and as a communications expert. But I want to go one thing that you said in the previous question when you went, decided to go to Istanbul, when these founders invited you and you said you were going through a stage or you are going through a stage of saying yes to everything because I read so many, you know, blogs and business books and listen to podcasts. And there's so much about like how learning how to say no is such a big thing. And it's like, learn how to say no. And if you can't do it next Tuesday, then you have to say no to it. And it's always in the back of my head of like not over committing and really thinking about what you want to do. But you like you just mentioned the complete opposite. Is that something that you do at a certain stage? Is that something that you recommend to certain people? Because I haven't heard, I mean, I've had heard of people saying yes to everything, but it's very, very rare. Okay. So let me qualify this. First of all, the healthy response is to find the nose. There's no question. I mean, that like, don't be an idiot, you know, like, cause you, you'll destroy your life. I've made a lifelong decision though, to do the opposite. I did. Part of that's just cause I did. I don't, it went back to my children, frankly, like, cause I would hear parents always like, um, there was a lot of no going on. And I was, my kids are little. Now remember, the mistake I made as a father is I was trying to heal my upbringing in my children, mm-hmm. right? So part of it is in that. So I always had this thing with my kids, which is find the yes. So if they asked me for something, it was like, okay, I can't do that, but I can do this, right? And I'd always find the yes. And so in my business life, it wasn't always yes for yes, but it was like, how can I do that? Yeah. Not, I can't do that, but how could I? Is there a way that I could make that happen? And that has always been my mantra. As I've gotten older and this educational moment that I'm going through over the last 10 years, yeah, I did. I went full bore the opposite. I went all the way. I said, you know what? And I look at it like this metaphysically. If somebody reaches me, now this is scary to say out loud, but if somebody reaches me and asks me for something, I have faith in the universe. I feel like, okay, there's a reason why that person came to me. If I say no, I'm doing something really bad in the universe. So yes. And I know that sounds terribly immature. And so I'm not recommending for anybody else. But for me, it has really worked. I would have never experienced Istanbul. I would have never gone to the Dardanelles. I would have never understood Ataturk or what that amazing human being did. I would have not understood the mosque that exists all over that country, what they stand for. There would have been so much I would have missed if I was simply said, well, no, you know, I've got this I need to do and I need to stay in my... Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, yeah. I think even, you know, from my viewpoint of how Kerem was built and how we did a lot of things, a lot of the things we did early on, there's no way we could have gotten to where we got to without saying yes to almost everything. You have to say yes to the challenges. You have to say yes to the donors. You have to say yes to the programs, to the people and what they want. And then you figure it out as you go along. Yeah. I hear yeah. you, but I, I do want people to understand is I get why you should put, you know, guardrails yeah. around because it can be like, you know, I think the, my daughter is for a man to say what I'm saying is one thing for a woman to say to something different. It is my daughter. She needs to, cause she would just, you know, she'll drive herself crazy. Yeah. She will. And so my coaching to her is like, look, let's prioritize. Let's figure out what sort of these you can say yes to. So I, I do think it's situational. Yeah. And I'd be careful with adopting it as, yo, yeah, let's just say yes. Because then, you know, now you're Jim Carrey in that movie. and Oh, yeah. (laughs) So on to your coaching experience. You've coached some of the top CEOs in the world, the biggest and the best. And you've added a lot of clarity and value to teams and missions across the world. I wanted to ask why and how you became a coach and why did you found SNP? Okay, two different things. Uh, I did SNP. Because I made a promise to myself when I was very young that I would start a business. Mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, that, that's what it was. And I was 17. I built this list and one of them was start a business. And so there I am. Our kids are babies. My wife and I are, are in consumer debt beyond imagination. And I made the stupid decision to go out and start a business with no business plan, 
no idea what I was going to do. It literally was, I'm just going to figure it out. But I had to get money within 30 days because we were in trouble. I didn't have family money. And so I ended up just really doing some pretty creative things, which I won't get into, that got the attention of business people in San Francisco because I just moved to San Francisco, literally just moved. And within a matter of six months, I had interviewed 250 business leaders. They got to know me. And the next thing you know, I had projects going because the idea of yes, they would ask me, Ren, can you do that? And I say, yeah. Now, had I ever done it before? Never. But they never asked me that essential question, which to this day always surprised me. Nobody ever said, hey, Ren, have you done this before? Nobody ever asked me that question in the first six months or 12 months of my company. I just simply said, you can, can you do that? Of course. And then I would make it up and try to figure out, right? So the business was, I just wanted to start a business. The coaching was very different. We were up and running for about, I don't know, at that point, maybe 10 years. And we had a really weird thing happen. Marissa Mayer, who was head of product at Google, had hired us to do some comms and meeting stuff and all that. But it was all this, it was podcast stuff, really, before podcasting and this kind of thing before we had what we're doing now, we had computers, but we didn't have all these tools. And But we would build them. We would make it all work. And so I was very much a, on the technology side of this, right? Marissa had gone out on a search trying to find a coaching company for all her high performers at Google, right? The product managers and all that. And she gave up. She said, I can't find what fits Google. And she calls my wife, who at that time, my wife was working closely with her and said, Mo, we found our coaching company. And Mo was like, well, who are they? She said, why don't you and your team come down to, to Google and we're going to tell you. And so our entire company showed up at Google, right? We're in a room. And Marissa says to us, guys, we've been searching for a coaching company and we found it. And it's you. Wow. And we're like, we're not coaches, Marissa. And she said, I'm sorry, you are. You don't realize it. You coach us all the time. You are helping us beyond, you know, you do the communication stuff, but you're helping us. And that's how we got introduced to it. And she ended up giving us her high performers in what they call the APM program. I don't know if you ever read about that, but she started this leadership program of which we were an integral part of it, in which we coach, and we've been doing this now for 20 years. We still do it today. Our company does it for Google in which we coach all these high performers with one caveat by Marissa. And this is what it was. She said, do not make them great Googlers. Don't do that. Make them great CEOs of future mm -hmm. companies. And that was her total agenda for us. We had nobody in HR we ever reported to. She never wanted to know what the conversations were. She never even asked us to report anything. She just simply said, meet with them once a week and coach them. And that's how I got started. Isn't that amazing? I can't. Believe that it was Marissa. Mm -hmm. I well, we embedded from Marissa forever. Yeah, yeah. And so, did you find when you started doing that? I mean, obviously, she hired you to do this because she saw you were already doing it with people. Is this something when you yeah. started thinking of yourself as a coach? Was that some a process that you began to develop in yourself? You just continued to do the same things that you always did. Like, how does that actually evolve? First of all, I've never considered myself a coach. I, I've I'm always really been hesitant to use that as a term. Because I, I see myself much more as a partner with people. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not the know-it-all. I don't know. I'm learning. And every single person I meet, it's a brand new thing. Like, I try not to overlay my, you know, that idea of the tyranny of experience, the tyranny of education, right? I try not to let that interfere with now, right? And so I don't overlay models. I don't do all that. But that said, over the years, I've learned how to help people get where they need to get. But it comes from a different point of view than maybe a typical coach. It's all about, to me, it's about you're a unique person with a unique idea, a unique place on the earth with a unique experience. How do I adjust to fit into that uniqueness? Because that's the only way I can start to, to even remotely participate in helping you get where you need to be. If I put myself in the picture, you lose. I lose too. Right. So I strip my ego out, my self-interest, my ambition. I strip it out. It's got to be all about this unique person trying to get to a unique place on earth. And how do I help them get there? Now I do have my approach is this idea of be a good person. You know, so if you talk to any of the founders I've worked with, they will always say something like this. I go, Ren's the one person in the room that will ask this fundamental question in the most complex moment. And this is the question. I will ask it. I'll, go, I'll stop with everybody. You know, PR people are freaking out. HR is freaking out. VCs are freaking out. Lawyers are freaking out. Everybody's freaking out because we're in a really bad 
situation. And I'll generally, at some point, after everybody's rambled on, I'll go, okay, guys, can we stop for a second? Can we first just focus on what's the right thing to do? Let's just forget all the other complexities just for a second, just for a moment in time, consider that we could actually do the right thing. What would that be? And it's really interesting what that does to people's brains because invariably a lawyer generally speaks up and goes, that's so naive. That's no, this is much more complex. I go, I hear you, but just for this one second, what if we could do the right thing? What would it be? And then what I do is let's consider that and then overlay the other stuff. I get, I get all the other stuff. So I try to live in this, this category of pure of heart, right? Just try to get into the pure space. And then what if we could do good? What if we could surprise? What if right in this moment, we do the counterfactual, right? It's the idea of, can we surprise and delight Mm -hmm. in this moment rather than be defensive and, you know, pull our guns out? Could we, right? And that becomes much more of the fundamental, my, at least if, if I have a way of doing it, that is something I do. Now, I must tell you, I get in massive trouble with HR people mm-hmm. all the time, like literally all the time. Like HR will often say, he's really dangerous. Get him out of the room. They will say that out loud, right? But founders that I'm very close to, they were aligned, were very aligned. Most of the founders I work with are, are very good people. Like they want to do the right thing. And so to have me in the room is comforting to yeah. them. And I'm not saying I'm perfect because I'm just like everyone else. I get caught up sometimes too. I get like, oh my God, this is horrible. And then I have to really reset myself in this idea of what if, what if. But I think like, do you find- And then that allows you to do something different. Do you find, I mean, I guess you've probably been in this situation so many times with all different kinds of circumstances, but is there- almost like a consensus on what is right? Will you find a situation where people think what is right? Is it like across the board? Because I would think like, if you really, really want to think about it, people know what right is. They don't actually, they don't. Can I tell you one story that's part of the archetype story that happened with Brian Chesky? If you remember the beginning of Airbnb, there was this really weird moment, I think it was in 2011, where a young woman in San Francisco rented her apartment out. She basically did a trade. She would often travel. And for two weeks, she gave her apartment up, not meaning to, but she gave it up to meth dealers. And these meth dealers turned her place into a drug den and got all of her personal information and basically destroyed her life, like really destroyed her life. Got her kicked out. She lost her lease, our credit cards. I mean, banking. I mean, it was mass destruction, right? And she couldn't get Airbnb's attention because Airbnb was so busy and everything, and she was reaching into them. And what ended up happening is four days passed where nobody at Airbnb responded to her. And there was a reason why that happened. They were young and all that, right? But it, it finally, it became known, and she went public with it. And Brian was told by everybody, Brian, you're a platform. You have no responsibility to her at all. And so what you have to do is separate yourself from her. Don't be near it, right? Brian's co-founder, Joe Debbie and I had gotten to know each other. I was working with Joe. And Joe kept saying to Brian, Brian, I need you to talk to Ren before you do anything, right? And so one Saturday night, 10 o'clock at night, I'll never forget it because Brian called me. And he calls me at home. He says, look, I don't know why I'm calling you, but Joe says, I need to talk to you. And he lays this whole story out. And I get really mad. I get really mad. And I said, okay, Brian, we're never going to talk again. And I'm going to tell you exactly what to do, but you're not going to do it. And here's what I told him. I said, Brian, I don't care about Airbnb. At this very moment, you get in your car, you drive directly to where she is, and you say to her, I'm going to put your whole life back together, even if that means your entire business goes under. And I mean it with all my heart and soul. I don't care. And I was, my language was foul, by the way. And I was, I was ballistic, right? And then everything goes silent on the phone. And I'm thinking, this guy's just going to hang the phone up on me. And here's what he said. Very lightly, his voice was, I knew it. Just like that. I go, what? And he goes, that's exactly what I thought I should do. But everybody was telling me not to. All my lawyers, my HR, everybody was telling me no. And you know what he did? He did just that. He ended up going to her and just committing. Somebody gets in trouble on Airbnb, we own it. And he did the opposite, right? It ended up giving birth to Airbnb. So what Chesky will say to this day is Chesky will always say, I don't think I deserve this, but Brian will say, Whenever I come up in a conversation, you'll go, that guy may be a CEO. Wow. Because what Bri did in that moment is he served everybody and said, no, 
I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what I know in my heart is right. We bonded over that in a very big way because I was the only one that even remotely said that to him, but it was exactly who he is. That's Brian Chesky. He is all about doing the right thing, right? And that is an extreme example. But that is at the heart of when I'm at my best and Brian's at his best was in that moment, I think. That is is so great. great, It's so great. I have such huge respect for Brian now. I mean, I always did, but that's a powerful story. And that's powerful that you told him that I'm going to tell you this and we're never going to speak again because of course nobody would ever listen to this (laughs) advice. That's amazing. That's exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I want to move to your time with Kedem House. And I know that you've spent a generous amount of time with our team at both Kedem Houses and Rehanli in Istanbul. You've worked with us across the board. I have to mention that the feedback that I got from the sessions you did at Kerem House was so glowing. And one person told me that you were the most impactful speaker they'd ever seen. And I kind of got jealous of that a little bit. I was like, I spoke to you guys so many times, but you yeah, really I, were magical. You're really magical to the team. And so I wanted to ask you, how was your time there? What did you learn from the experience? Well, first of all, I was unbelievably charmed. Look, you know this. I mean, when when you see people that are going through with, with the folks that are going through in Cottom, particularly in Rehanli, they don't even realize it, but they're so heroic in a very everyday fashion. And for me to even have the privilege of even being near that was just overwhelming. So the emotion I felt was I was kind of giddy the whole time of going, oh my God, I'm in a room full of just magical humans, just magical, wonderful humans, right? And so I think that was my overriding emotion that I was feeling. I was struck by, look, I and I don't want to get into the men-women thing, but the young women to me were incredibly impressive. Like, I, I don't know why they struck me, but, and this is an symbol as well, where when you get into conversation with any of them, and, you know, we have like a scrum, right? So they'd all surround me and we'd be chatting about stuff and their insightfulness, you know, to hear a, a teenage, young teenage girl going through what she's going through with the kind of life that, you know, she's on the edge of having. And yet she is ambitious. She's smart. She's inspired. You know, I just got so caught up with, particularly as a father, with my daughter, who's very ambitious and all that too, to watch that and go, whoa, this is really impressive. So the overwhelming emotion for me was I was honored to even be even there. Then I don't know if you you knew, but we had so much fun in the so-called teaching that I did with the group in Rayhanli because I had an interpreter, right? It was my very first time teaching with an interpreter who danced with me. Like, so we had the best time. And we just had so much fun. And then I would play with him, and, you know, like he would interpret it in Arabic, right? And I'd immediately go, no, what? That's a lie. What did you just say? And, you know, it was this incredibly playful moment in a very serious place on earth with a bunch of people that are fully intending to change their circumstances yeah. unequivocally. Like there's no doubt in their mind. There's no victim here. There's a responsibility here. And that heroism with all the laughter, all the charm and all of that, it was a truly magical moment. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I agree with you 100% and how heroic they are and their sense of responsibility and the fact that they embrace all of the challenges and take everything forward to the next level. I wanted to ask yeah. you about, you know, you say that you're on a global mission to find ethical leaders. You talk a lot about ethical leadership. We are on a mission to build 10,000 leaders for the future of Syria through our work with refugee youth. How do you define ethical leadership? I don't know if I know, actually. I mean, it is that idea of doing the right thing, but it's also, I think, having a clarity of mission. You know, I teach people to get up on stage. It's one of the things I do, you know, this idea of, of giving speeches and that. And I often say to people, the best thing you can do when you're about to get on the stage or you're about to teach or you're about to do anything is say in your head or out loud, it's not about me. It's just not about me. So when I meet ethical leaders, I look for those that are, that they're not about them. It's not about their ego. It's not about me, 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 me. It's not that at all. It's about service. It's about realizing that they have responsibility to something larger than themselves and they're willing to stretch themselves for it, even if it means it's going to hurt them. Like they do it for the purpose of being a part of humanity. So doing the right thing is, you know, sounds trite, but it's more than that. It's being externally focused. It's like walking the earth in mission 
to others rather than to self. And I look for those people. And when you meet them, then all you have to really do is align with them and then just keep reminding them, okay, you know, remember who you are, remember where you are, remember what your mission is. And it just becomes more of a nudging role rather than some kind of overwhelming, you know, you have to do much except just nudge. And they'll do the right thing because it's their nature to do the right thing. So that's what I look for in ethical leaders. I mean, you've written a lot about missions and I think about mission a lot too, especially when you talked about, you know, finding purpose, combating burnout through purpose and mission and all of these kinds of things. So why is it so critical to have a mission? And this is also something that people can think about. It can scale up to the scale of a company and organization, but also even within a family or your own individual mission. How should we be thinking about missions, personal missions, and also the idea of that we need to re-examine our missions periodically? Yeah, you know, I'm doing a lot of reading on this and, and philosophical writings on this. And there's some really interesting things you read about with purpose, right? So think about things that have a purpose. A machine has a purpose. A car has a purpose. All these things, right? Most of the, and this is what one philosopher says that having a purpose actually is one of the most boring things you can do because it's like, it's, you're a machine and you have a purpose, right? And all that. So I'm playing right now with this idea. Is it purpose or is it an understanding that life is when you look at life and you look at, look, look at what's happening. If you're a Syrian coming out of Aleppo and you're now in Southern Turkey, you can see that the dominance of life is actually suffering. I mean, really, if you look at the entire globe, you know, there's a few of us that live the life, Lena, that you and I live. We're in that top 1% of 1%, right? The vast part of the earth is pretty desperate and it's pretty not good, right? So you could make the argument with absolute all the facts that life is really stupid and life is hopeless and life is, there's no purpose in it. I mean, you might as well just kill yourself because there's no purpose in it whatsoever. So I have looked at that and go, you know what? That may actually be true. That this is a a really desperate situation that we're in the middle of, but I'm here. And the miraculous nature of even being here is so miraculous, right? That, okay, I'm here. It's a desperate situation. I can give into that or I can play my part in doing what I can do to make it good for the people that I bump into. I can't serve the world. I can't solve everything. But I can solve proximity. There's a, a, you know, Voltaire wrote a book called mm-hmm. Candide, right? And I just reread it the other day. And in the, in the book Candide, if you know the book, it's the main characters who lives this crazy life. Like the world's just a mess with wars and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And when he gets to the end of the book, it lands on a very interesting philosophical truth. And that is simply this. Tend your garden. That's it. So you can get into heavy purposes and missions. You can get into all that heaviness and make it grand and big. But in truth, the greatest thing you can do is tend your garden. Do what you can do in your circle. That's why this idea of, yes, I bump into someone, there must be a reason. So therefore, right, just tend the garden. So I'm toning a little bit down on the like mission, yes, but it makes it sound so grand. It may not be grand. It may be as simple as, like, I, I spent uh, almost 10 years going out to San Quentin Prison because it's, it's in my backyard in San Francisco. And I remember I called a mentor of mine and I said, um, I'm about to go, start going to the prison teaching. And he said to me, he said, Ren, okay, number one, forget that you're going to do anything of value. Just forget. Forget that. Just get out of your head, right? The lies they're leading and what they're in the middle of is far worse than anything you could ever you're not going to be able to solve it. So get that out of your head, right? It's always like, okay, then what can I do? He said, just do this, and this will do more good than anything. He said, when you walk in the prison, as you meet each prisoner, he said, I want you to make eye contact with them. I want you to reach your hand out and grab their hand, and I want you to say your name. What is your name? And he said, just do that. Because in that one moment, what you give them is dignity. And he said, that is the gift. Nothing else. He said, sure, you'll teach stuff and you'll do things and, you know, you'll help them with their resumes and help them get jobs and you'll do all, but nothing is going to come near that act. And that has informed me as I do anything, anywhere I go on earth, I, I think, okay, I meet someone, maybe I can help them. I don't know. But what I can do in this moment is I can give them dignity. I can show them respect and I can do that with all my heart and soul in that moment. And I think that at the end of the day, as I've gotten older, I realize that's what that's I can. a moment of true humanity. Right. Wow. I that's, mean, if you talk about yeah. the connection between communication and the sense of belonging, how you can't get stronger than that. 
Yeah, I think so. Listen, we're all lost little souls trying to figure out ways, you know? And so everybody's got to find their own way of making sense of this stupidity we call life, right? And so I've spent my life trying to figure out what's my role? What can I do? And as I've gotten older, you know, I'm landing in places, right? And that's one of them is just be on the good side of things rather than, you know, rather than the the selfishness of life, right? Do the right thing. I have a couple more questions before we go into our quick questions at the end. One, we definitely want to talk about Udly because everybody's really interested in AI and you're, you're the tech guy and you're, you have the San Francisco connections and all of this. So I noticed that you use it and that you have invested in it. So you can tell us about what this AI tool is for speech, public speech like getting better at public speech and communication. And you said that there was yeah, an interesting yeah. story behind it. So we'd love to hear it. Yeah, Udly is a it's an online tool that is to help you with presenting, but also interviewing. Like, for example, this conversation would be recorded by Udly and then it does an analysis on, did you talk too much? Did you use the right words? What did you do in your pausing? And all that, it analyzes your behavior and then gives you feedback on that behavior. It also allows for a live coach to step in to look at it and then also coach you on that, right? But the great part of Udly is this, and the reason why Mo and I, my wife and partner, decided to jump in this was because of the young founder. This young founder is this amazing young guy from India who somehow, some way, became the assistant to one of the founders of Google, uh, Sergey, Sergey Brown. And he became his assistant for two years, right? In his early 20s, this kid grew up very poor in India. And he saw what he learned was that how you present yourself, how you come out really makes a difference, right? And so he built this tool fundamentally to help other young men and women in India cross the chasm into being able to get into Oxford, being able to get into American universities, being able to transcend their poverty into this world of business. And when I met him and just saw his, his energy was about that, we jumped right in. And now he's a go-getter. He has done such amazing things with Udly because of his work with, he's very close to people from Microsoft, from Google. I mean, he is building something for real, but he's very ambitious and, and yeah. a founder, you know, a true founder down to his bones. So we think the tool's cool, but what's cooler is him and his desire to do something really good in the world for people that are growing up in poverty. Because one of the missions I have, if I have a mission, is if we can help people get their economic, you know, move them up the economic ladder a little bit, that I think does more for the world than anything. And this tool, Udly, its purpose is to do that, not just in India, but all over the world where there are young people that don't have the access Mm -hmm. to what you and I have the access to, but they can learn the skills for how to say hello, how to do video well, how to interview well, how to talk, right? If they can learn to do that, then their brain will take the rest We need to add this onto the Kedem House students and scholars to use. So I noticed that you, I mean, the founder story is great. And I love these inspirational people that really are going out and building things that help the world get better. When you use Udly, somebody like you, that you're like, you are a communications expert and it's your job and you've been doing it for decades. When you're using it yourself in meetings, what mm-hmm. are you learning from yourself to improve your own communication skills? I'm learning the exact like, What are the things that you actually like, um, you know, were you surprised by anything? I, what are the things? I talk too much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I talk too much. I talk too fast. I use too many non-words. Yeah. No, no. I, I Listen. I'm a human being too. I have the same issues yeah. that most people have. And and usually <laughs> shows it to me. No question. You can't hide it yeah. from the AI. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. It's just an AI tool that he is really, he's got some great engineers on it and they're honing it all the time, making it better, better, better. Wonderful. Yeah. And then I have a last question for you about coaching again and communication skills and learning the skills for most of the people that don't have access to a coach or don't really know where to start when you look at resources in terms of books and podcasts and people we should follow. Could you give us some recommendations if we wanted to improve our communications, improve our relationships at work, look into what people would learn from a coach? Where should people start? Any recommended books or people to follow or podcasts? Well, you know, look, there's all the normal, you know, there's the Simon Senecs and there's uh, there's an amazing guy from Australia named Ven, V-I-N-H. If you ever get his stuff on TikTok and on Reels, he's really terrific. I've fallen in love with this guy. I think he's amazing. But 
Here's what I'd like to suggest, and it's slightly different than that. In order to become good at something, teach it. Okay? So if I was a 17-year-old, I would try to find a 15-year-old that I could coach. That's what I would do. I would just start coaching. Just start help somebody that's down the ladder from you and help them. So if I was a junior in high school, right, I would try to find a freshman and just say, can I kind of help you with this? And Right? And you'll learn more by doing than you will by paying attention to people like me and all that. You, I mean, the best thing to do is do it. So wherever you are in the stage of life, look down a little bit on that. Not only down to say down, but like, just look at somebody who's behind you and they're coming up the path and they could gain from your wisdom a little bit or gain from your experience and just call them, right? And I also say the opposite. I tell founders all the time, if you're in your 20s, you can almost call anybody. And I do mean it. Anybody, even famous people. And if you call them and said, look, I'm doing this, I would love to just have a conversation with you, a cup of coffee with you or something to just help me get where I need to go. Most successful people will say yes. They will absolutely say yes, oddly enough. And so, and I did that back in the day with Brian Chesky. Brian, every week would pick the newspaper and whatever famous person he saw in the paper he wanted to get to know, he would just write him an email, call him. And he'd have every week meetings with just unbelievable people when he was nobody, when he was absolutely just a a struggling founder. And so I tell people, go, first of all, coach, help. But then the opposite, you got somebody you're impressed with, Richard Branson, write him a note. You're going to be blown. He will respond to you. He's going to say, yeah, I love to write. You know what I'm talking about. I think that was, for me, that was one of the biggest powers of Twitter, like early and good Twitter. (laughs) I'll say that it was really powerful in the early days of the revolution and the Arab Spring. And that was what a lot of people talk about social media. But I think the biggest part of the power of Twitter was suddenly everybody could connect with any journalist or any media outlet and have that one-to-one connection Mm -hmm. with people. And then you prove yourself as you work and you build your credibility and then you meet really, you can connect with almost anyone. Almost anyone. Really powerful. I'm a big fan of, like, I, I, when I was a teenager, I realized something about myself. I learned from experience. And I realized that when I was 17. And so I just said, okay, I'm going to have to live a life of experiences because I'm not going to be good. At, I'm just not good at books, right? And I think the same thing goes with coaching. Do it, be it, and then Wonderful. you'll learn. So we'll go to the rapid fire questions that we ask every guest. They're oh, easy, no. don't worry. <laughs> the first question is, complete this sentence. Home is where? I belong. If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? A family picture of my wife and I and and our two children. What's one piece of advice you'd give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? Wow. I'm not sure I'm I'm an expert on that because I think by the fact that they're doing it, they've already passed me. Follow your heart. I mean, you know, trust. Uh, There's a lot of good people on the earth. Uh, Find them. Beautiful. Find them. So I know that you call different hometowns your home and you travel a lot. So if you can, for this question, give us a list of three unexpected places that people must visit in your hometown. And that could be one hometown or several of the places that you live in. Okay. So I, I mean, I spent most of my life being a runner, right? And so Tamalpais, Mount Tamalpais, north of San Francisco is a church. The whole blasted mountain is a church with indigenous influences and all that. So get yourself to Mount Tam, no question about it. I am religious about Central Park in New York City. Go find the Ramble, the Ramble, which is part of Central Park. Find the Ramble. Just look for where it is, right? Just walk it, right? And then Istanbul, I think I did something really... I walked one Saturday afternoon from Galata Tower all the way to Selim First Mosque, in which I walked all these neighborhoods all the way through. And if you go to Istanbul, I highly recommend put on your best shoes and walk the entire city. You will walk from neighborhood to neighborhood, and you're going to see the depth and the color and the wonderment of this amazing place on earth. And I'll never forget that afternoon. I was so moved by every neighborhood I found myself in, the people I met. And I spent about three hours doing this walk. And it was so extraordinary to me. Istanbul to me all by itself, just that city is a magical place on earth. You know, put your walking shoes on. Beautiful. What dish tastes like home to you? (laughs) What dish tastes like home? 
That's a good question. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a I'm of Italian heritage, so any pasta is going to win me. Anything with a red sauce is going to win me. That's no really question good. about it. What there's a book or books that you love and recommend it to your friends? Marcus Aurelius Meditations. I just think you should just reread that about a million times. I'm deep into the Stoics. I think that there's such depth of information there. So yeah, that's where I would land. Well, this has been really wonderful, informational, inspirational. I love talking to you, Ren. I always do. And I'm so excited to share all of your wisdom and your experience and all these incredible stories with everybody who listens to the podcast. I really appreciate all of your time. Absolutely. Well, my privilege. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. As I always say to you about Kahnemaz, you know, what an amazing gift you created and the people that you have around you that are doing that work. All of us that are standing outside are just in total admiration. Thank you so much, Ren. Thank you. See you later. See you. During one of my visits to Rehande, Turkey, I sat down with 17-year-old Wa'il and together we talked about what belonging means to him. It was a really interesting conversation. During the mapping exercise, he was the only person I interviewed to draw his future map of home, claiming he belongs to his future big house and nice car that he plans on working very hard to achieve. And of course, Wa'il shares details about his journey from Syria to Turkey. Internally displaced for six years before fleeing for safety in Turkey, Wa'il struggled to find himself in a new setting. But as we see with most refugees, resilience and strength are motivators for them to continue on their path and strive for greatness. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Wa'il. Welcome to Belongings, Wa'il. My first question is, can you tell us what belonging means to you? Belonging is meeting new people. It's learning. It's working hard. Even if you don't have much to offer or don't have the capability, you try. What's important is you mingle with people. You learn. For me, that's belonging. It's meeting new people, learning from them. It's working hard and working on achieving my goals. That's belonging. So, Wa'il, please draw your map of home. This is an exercise we do for every guest. If you could draw a map of home from the past or the future or the present, or it could be symbolic, and then we'll ask you to tell a story about your map. So, Wa'il, please tell us about your map of home. The house I drew is my house. Once I graduate and achieve my dreams, it's a two-story mansion with a yard and a pool. It's a modern, beautiful home. And it's a very spacious home. And of course, I drew the car. The most important thing is the car. It's my favorite car, my future car, a Range Rover, a black one, and my home. I hope it will be in Europe. Germany in specific. There's a goal I have in mind. I've achieved most of it for now. What's left now is me going to Europe. I am studying to work with dental prosthetics. I finished most of my studying for now. I worked very hard on it. Now what's left is getting my passport and a possible scholarship. I'm working hard now. We'll see what happens. I hope you get the house of your dreams. Can you tell us about your journey from Syria to Reyhanli, Turkey? When my journey began, it was right at the heart of the conflict. So we fled to Damascus and lived there for six years. We lived in a place, I still remember it, called Tishreen. But even there, things got bad. We lived through very hard times there. Like we would be at home and fighter jets would be right above us, bombing away. Luckily, we managed to leave Damascus safely. We went back to our original hometown, neighborhood. We stayed there another year or two. I honestly don't remember how long it was. But things started to get bad there too. So going to Turkey? I don't know how to explain how it happened. We compiled some documents with the help of locals and attempted to go. They didn't let my older brother or my father in with us. My brother had special needs, so we explained to them that he needs his mother, but it was no use. They didn't let him in. At the time, 
there was a lot of forging of documents and trying to sneak in through the border. My dad attempted to do something like that for my brother, but it backfired. They caught my brother and arrested him. They beat him and tortured him, but then they let him out. My dad and brother tried one more time to get in. Luckily, in the end, they made it. By the way, when I say my older brother, I have two. One is a few years older, but the other is actually my twin. But he is one minute older than I am. When I started my educational journey here in Turkey, the first thing my brother and I did was start memorizing Quran. And now, I have memorized the entire Quran and hold a certificate. Now my brother is studying IT. He has certificates that allow him to skip his first two years of university. I did the same, but with dental prosthetics. So when we first got here, we really prioritized education, and it paid off. In Syria, we didn't have many goals. Our school was bombed, our home was gone. But behind all of this, all you need is someone rooting for you. And this was my aunt. She was a big motivator and help for us. And look where we are now dreaming big. My oldest brother is studying nutrition, my other brother IT, and me dental prosthetics. I really want to go to Germany to study, because there's a good future for the specialty I'm choosing. After studying dental prosthetics for two years in Germany, I can even get my master's. So that's my goal for now, to get my master's and have my own practice. That's what I hope. Let's see. Earlier you said you're a high school senior, so are you taking these dental classes alongside your regular classes? Yes, that's what I'm doing. I don't have much left in high school anyway, so I make use of my free time this way. Can you tell us about your experience at Karam House? Yes. When I first came to Karam House, my parents didn't have the same vision as I did. They would tell me, don't go waste your time, just stay home and do other things. It was the opposite of motivation. But I persisted, and I worked on my goals at Karam House. The first thing I wanted to do at Karam House was build a robot. I did that. The next thing I wanted to do was make a model of Saturn. And I spent two months building a model of a playground with my friend. When I created all of this and I showed it to my parents, they were shocked that I was working on all of that. Now, they are the ones who push me to go to Karam House. They want me to excel. So now, if I want to miss a day at Karam House, my dad says I shouldn't. He says, this is your future. Don't sleep on it. That was very important for me, that I was able to change their mind. And now we're all on the same page when it comes to our future vision. The only thing we don't see eye to eye on is that they don't want me to be away. If I make it to Germany, they want me to come back home after my education is completed. But I hope I can convince them that I need to work there, that it's for the best. You don't see yourself living in Turkey. For my future? No, not at all. There's no future for me here. So do you think that that decision, it's not only about your studies, it's also about what we talked about in terms of belonging? Yes. First of all, I know what I'll be studying. Second, if I move, I will have met new people and learned from them. I would build relationships and have purpose. I'll have passion. And for me, all that is important. So now we're going to go into the rapid-fire questions, which are the questions I ask every guest. Complete this sentence. Home is where? My future mansion is. If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? The car. What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's finding belonging in a new place? Start by meeting new people. Work hard on yourself and you will achieve your goals. Give us a list of three places that people must visit in your hometown. Damascus, 
the Amoe Mosque and the Ibra ruins. What dish tastes like home to you? Kibse. What's a book that you love and have recommended to your friends the most? After I read this book, my life was literally transformed. It's by Dr. Ibrahim Fakma. I can't remember the name. I think it was The Eight Keys or something. Just look up Ibrahim Fakma and you'll find it. It's a book unlike any other. As you're reading, it's like the words themselves are motivating you. Wow, we're going to try to find the title. Thank you so much, Wael, for speaking with us today and being a guest on Belongings. I really hope that you follow this plan and reach your dreams. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode research by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.